Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Soundrise Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest for you, Chris Ackman, the former co-leader of The Walkabouts, a Seattle-based band that was the first non-grunge band to be signed to Sub Pop label. Chris is also involved in numerous music projects, such as other bands, Dirt Music and The Strange, and he has a very rich catalog of solo work. However, he's also a co-owner of the label Glitter Beat Records that can pride itself on a great range of records from all over the world. So it's an immense pleasure to be able to talk to someone with such a rich career as Chris Ackman. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this wonderful interview. All right, Chris, thank you. Thank you for joining the show. First, uh, that I want to ask you is, since we all know that there's a pandemic going on in the whole world, I want to ask you, what is it like to work as a musician during the pandemic? And does this situation change the way musicians in general think about presenting their work, Chris? Well, I think the main thing is that there's so far very little work during this pandemic, at least in the traditional sense of playing concerts. You know, I think we're all aware of that, that most things have been canceled. I've been lucky enough to play a couple small shows already. The situation in Slovenia and at least Croatia when I went there one month ago was a bit more relaxed. Uh, a lot of uh, smaller concerts started to happen, you know, 50 people and less. So this this was something, I mean, that's an adaptation already to begin with, that you are sort of thinking about it in a, in a let's say, a reduced way in terms of audiences. But I think what we really saw during the pandemic was a lot of people getting involved in streaming concerts, very direct stuff from home. Some venues were even doing streaming concerts. There's a lot of experimentation going on. You know, it's going to be really interesting to see where that goes because I think in some ways this is lasting longer than people expected and so these adaptations are going to be more and more important you know like my work I do with the label Glitterbeat my label uh you know most tours we had for 2020 are either completely canceled or some are kind of hanging on tours let's say in November late October some you know let's say faith that maybe things will be stabilized by then but probably we're really looking at 2021 for you know really active touring yeah exactly what i would also like to ask you quickly is given that this pandemic has given a lot of space for i don't know businesses private users and and uh, and other and other people it's given a lot of space for certain innovations you know a lot of people are switching to online solutions and so on do you think that in the music industry and for musicians in general there's some space for new trends, so to say. Well, let's look at the like the good and bad. Let's start with the good. The good parts of this have been that actually there's been a real increase of, let's say, direct sales of music, you know, directly to, to artists through platforms like Bandcamp and so on. I think there's a sense, again, that people realize that one way you can support this music is by buying it. And, you know, the idea of buying music had become more and more rare. I, I don't, it's hard to know if this is just a blip, you know, like a momentary reconsideration, or is this something that's going to carry over in these next months? So I think that this, this is an interesting point. The adaptation when it comes to, let's say, doing live concerts via streaming, 
talking to musicians, myself being a musician, I don't think anybody looks at this as a long-term solution because, you know, live music is exactly that. It's live music. And there's, you know, something very, very, you know, inherent in that experience of just being in a room with music. And it's not going to be replaced by, you know, streaming and, and online concerts. That's a different thing. It's maybe another thing. It's maybe going to be, let's say, something that's added more and more to the mix of things. But I don't look at that as a replacement, and I don't really know anybody who does. I don't think that we can we can look at uh, it, you know, in any way as, as a substitute. Yeah, that's true. I think that nowadays um, we're facing with this crisis where we really miss live music and the whole intimacy of that. And a lot of things are obviously put on hold. I see that you're still having gigs, uh, which makes me very happy. Uh, but I want to ask you about your future plans, because you've been quite active recently with different projects, uh, Dirt Music, The Strange, and so on. So what is in store for the future after this is over, for example? Yeah, during this time, I mean, I do have a day job. My day job is I run the label, Glitterbeat. So it's, you know, the last years I have been pretty active, but I still really have to search in a way more for time than when I was 100%, uh, you know, let's say a professional musician when that, that was my main job. I have to search for, for cracks of time when I, when I can dedicate myself to songwriting and things like that. But during this quarantine time, I, before it started some tentative experiments for a, a new solo album and during that time and now continuing after the quarantine's been over, at least for us here in Slovenia, I've continued to write and I basically have a solo album written. And um, that's why I'm playing l these little solo shows right now because I'm actually playing new songs, not entirely, but I'm, I'm playing some new songs and it's a good way to sort of experiment around with them and then start to get the idea, you know, like what will I do in terms of actually recording the record, you know, what what sort of setup band-wise or even studio. But, you know, it's I always have, with the solo stuff especially, really gone in and learned the songs, know them really, really well, be able to put them in a lot of different contexts, and then I'll start to, you know, uh, start to choose exactly how I'll proceed with it. Uh, that's great to hear that you're working on the new material. Uh, I think... Correct me if I'm wrong, but the last solo record you did was Harney County, which I really loved because it kind of had that uh, Bruce Springsteen, Nebraska feel and Towns Van Zand. Can you tell me uh, uh, the walkabouts ended uh, several years ago and now you're basically a solo artist and you have other projects? Are the walkabouts still somewhere in your mind? Is there some kind of possibility of working together with Carla and others? Well, I think it's it's very, I would say, a very limited possibility. We never really officially broke up. And the one reason we didn't do that is we didn't want to be one of this, you know, let's say these lame situations where everybody announces that the band is over and then, you know, sometimes three, five, seven years later, they're already touring again. I, th I think we just left it sort of on ice, as, as we say, and uh, it's there to go back to if there would be any reason. I think, you know, one reason we don't is that the way we ended it in 2012, I mean, we had a couple of tours in 2012. We released this record, Travels in the Dustland, at the end of 2011. And it all worked so well in a way 
that we felt that this was just really a, maybe a nice place just to say, hey, we did this. You know, there was a sense amongst all of us that our lives, our, our personal lives were changing and it would be really hard for us to find that kind of dedicated time that we all could commit, you know, to doing something as good as what we did during that period. And I think that's really it. You know, nobody wants to go back and make a record that, you know, we just put together for fun or just because we think maybe somebody would like it. It has to be something that's really driving us to, to do it, I think, artistically, you know, more than anything. And I think also going out and playing live without a new record, we talked about that, but everybody also felt like, well, that's not something that we were really passionate about doing. It becomes a little bit like a you know, you go out and you play your greatest hits and that was never what the walkabouts were about. We were always evolving, always doing new stuff. So I think for now, we're, we are where we are. And, you know, I think it would take, I don't really know what it would take to, to get us back doing it again. But I, I can say that everybody involved is pretty satisfied with the way it is at, at this point. All right, Chris, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I want to ask you, given the fact that you live in, in Slovenia, I want to ask you about the famous ex-Yugoslavian new wave slash punk scene. So back in the day, the country was quite uh, famous for it. It was well known for its creativity and also such acts used to sound like, you know, the famous British new wave acts like maybe Joy Division. So I want to ask you, what do you think of that scene? Did it have the potential back then to be one of the greatest uh, bands in the new wave world? And do you do you draw any inspiration from 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 such acts? When I moved when I moved to uh, Slovenia, I, I didn't have a very broad understanding of of, of that that eighties scene, and uh, you know I started to meet some people involved. I mean, certainly the Slovenian side. I, I worked for years with this guy Janis Krajaj. As uh, he was an engineer on a lot of projects I did, and he was in this Slovenian band Video Sex. And yeah, I, I've met you know quite a few participants in that. I think that the scene was, you know, was super vital, obviously, and that's the, a lot of the aesthetics that were incorporated, you know, were international. But on the other hand, there was not beyond just language. There, there always seemed to be some with, with let's say, the less poppy stuff, especially like the more underground stuff. There seemed to be something quite distinctive about it, and I think that that's. Uh, I, I, you know, I mean, some of that music has now been put into uh, anthologies and compilations, and, and 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 offered on an international, you know, basis. And it's no surprise to me that that that, that would be the case. Yeah, and it's always interesting to even knowing like some of the bands that came through Yugoslavia, like for example, Gang of Four, how big they were. This this famous concert they played in uh, Croatia. I'm not sure if they played in Serbia during that time, but I kn I know that they played in Zagreb. And uh, yeah, The Fall were the, also a band that was quite beloved. And yeah, I mean, I, I have some sense of it, but I, I, I think it's 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 probably still rather undiscovered on, on an international level. And maybe there's some more excavations need to happen and more re-releases, because I think there would, you know, be a market for that. Uh, you know, it's, it seems like, uh, especially stuff from this post-punk era is 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 getting really full reissue stuff uh all over the world uh, even brazilian post-punk and you know all, all of these different scenes so it would make sense yes absolutely and i really feel kind of bad because 
even in the Balkans nowadays, post-punk is not that famous and you know, you only have a small por- a small portion of enthusiasts who are actually willing to either explore that stuff or or go to actual gigs, which are kind of rare because a lot of acts are not active anymore due to very due to uh, various reasons. And and I'm saying this because I'm a big new wave fan and I and I'm kind of proud, so to say. Maybe that's a strong word, but I, I'm really glad that we had such a, such a rich and inspiring new wave scene that was influenced by big acts such as you know the fall joy division new order you you can you can hear that when when listening to to those guys so yeah maybe maybe one day it will gain more popularity we'll see about that well, i remember hearing at one point that like oboyani program were i mean they they were played on john peel i think that's quite well known and some of it has gotten out but yeah there there still seems to be not much of a, a strong perception of it outside of this region, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's a great insight on your part, because it's always interesting to hear an outsider's perspective, even though by this time, I guess you're not an outsider by any means anymore. But this is a nice segue into something else that I wanted to ask you about. So you've had uh, Glitter Beat Records for a number of years now. And the label is quite fascinating, given the range of different musicians from all over the world, different styles. Uh, I've been checking out records on Bandcamp. It's like such a journey. So what I want to ask you is, uh, why did you decide to focus on this kind of world music? And uh, how did the whole label came about? I mean, the label came about pretty naturally. I, I was working on some records in Mali, in Bamako. I mean, how I ended up there is kind of a longer story, but let's just, the short version is that it was around 2005, 2006. I was, I guess it was 2005. I was, I don't know, I was somehow feeling a little bit lost for inspiration. I had always listened to African music, even back in, in you know, like 80, 81. And I had been very heavily struck by these experiments that Brian Eno and David Byrne were doing with it. And that had led me to Fela Kuti and King Sunny Ade, a lot of Nigerian and Ghanaian stuff. Then I had a friend that had gone in the 90s to, to Mali and done field recordings. And so that sparked my interest again. And then, yeah, 2006, I ended up going there for about five weeks to Mali with no projects, just as an experience, I guess, a way looking to interact with music, not in a sense of doing projects, but just really as a listener, as a fan, as a somebody who was coming to learn, just to see music done in its environment, you know, not not packaged and 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 processed and sent out into the world, but you know, to actually go there and and and, and experience the music firsthand. From that point it was a very profound experience and i went back again in 2008 with dirt music we played at this festival in the desert out past timbuktu middle of nowhere in the in the mali and sahara and then uh we met this band tamikrest this young very young tuareg band they were all in their early 20s at that point we ended up befriending them and jamming with them for a few days and then the discussion was well let's make a record we went back to Bamako in 2009 to make a record with them. And from there, it became clear that they had a whole collection of wonderful songs themselves. So a really good friend of mine, Peter Weber, who I ended up founding Glitterbeat with, 
we got this idea, let's let's record Tamicrust. First few records we did down there, we licensed to other labels. And, and then at some point, I don't know, it's kind of flashed to us that we didn't really feel like, you, you know, I think what the basic point was, you used the terminology world music. We, we didn't even know what world music was, really. I mean, in the sense that this was not a, a scene or a terminology that we really embraced. And what we saw is that in a lot of ways, music from far-flung places was being treated you know, with respect on one hand, but also as this kind of exotica, you know, this, this, this really, um, you know, it, 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 with some, either, either with this kind of sense of distance because it's exotic or with this very academic, let's say, orientation, like ethnomusicologists, more angle to things. And we, and we looked at it quite different. We thought, okay, what, what these artists are is they're contemporary artists. They're just not from Boston or, or Belgrade, or Seattle, you know, but they are contemporary artists, and we should, you know, what would it be like to start a label where we treated the music like that? Not as something that's distant, but something that should be really close to us, actually, because it's not, it's not, this is not tribal music that we release. I mean, we do some of that. We've done, we've done some very, very specific um, field recording type music, but in general, what we're doing is we're dealing with contemporary artists from all over the world. They just for the most part, are not coming from the the typical places that that music in the Western music conversation. You know, the the, the feeder cities like Paris, London, this New York, this kind of thing. So we we had kind of a different idea when we started it than what was being done already, and um, that's really carried through these. I guess now we've been doing it for seven years. It's carried through throughout these seven years. We didn't really ever changed the basic concept the only thing that happened is as you said it comes the music has become more and more diverse it's not only from west africa or even more specifically it's not only from mali i mean the first records were all from mali but now records we release can come from you know just about anywhere and that's for me this is the most exciting let's say time for the label because we really don't have a narrow focus now we have a very broad focus and it makes it very exciting I have to praise that approach and that mindset, looking for music in, in all parts of, of the world and from different backgrounds, from different uh, stories. That's truly inspiring, Chris, and I, I really encourage everyone to do so because we as individuals tend to do that, and I think there's room for, for more of that stuff. So definitely, you know, people shouldn't just stick to to the mainstream stuff or or or, or to, to the stuff that's easily accessible you know because i have to say uh, me personally i find music based on based on its ability to match all my feelings and moods and i think that there's certainly some unknown and hidden gems out in the world so great points great points chris Yes, uh, definitely. And Chris, I also want to ask you, so you mentioned how you found these musicians, you decided to record them, but I'm also curious about how you go about these things nowadays. How do you scout for talent? How do you recruit musicians and bands for the label? Yeah, it's become quite different than where we started. I mean, we were really, 
I mean, we had no reputation. So, you know, nobody was sending us stuff when we started. Of course, nobody knew who we were. Like, like I pointed out, we didn't really come from this quote unquote world music scene. I mean, I had no roots in it in terms of even, let's say, business structure. You know, I didn't know people. I didn't know, I didn't know the players. I didn't know anything. And this probably one reason why we never used the words world music because we didn't feel like this is what we were doing or this is where you know we we were centered. You know, I came up through indie rock, Americana. This was the world I knew, and I didn't see this music as that much different in a way. It's just young bands trying to find stages to play on. You know, but now things have changed quite a bit. Obviously, we gained quite a reputation as a label, which still surprises me to today because we started it as a really, I, I think, a, a small experiment. I, I don't think we ever thought we would last seven years, let alone become a, a label that has uh, 100 releases. This year we will uh, release our 100th release. So it's quite, quite a uh, long process now. But I, we still do scouting. I still go places. I haven't been back to Africa for a couple of years now, but I've sp- spending a lot of time, uh, not so much this past year, but in the in the, in the couple of years before uh, in Istanbul, we've made really great contacts there, and we we signed a, a couple of really wonderful artists based there. Yeah, I've been to Colombia, I've been to Brazil, variety of places in Europe, Albania, northern Greece. Uh, you know, I go on scouting trips, but we also get stuff sent to us which is quite different than when we started. We were a known quantity, known, a known element now. And so uh, people that are looking for a label, managers, booking agents, artists themselves, send us stuff directly. And we spend a lot of time listening to things that we receive. Speaking of finding collaborators and partners and uh, having, having that proper personnel with you, I want to ask you about working with Brian Eno. So... You worked with Brian Eno on the Walkabouts record Scavenger, and I'm sure that a lot of people know who Brian Eno is, and I'm sure there there's a lot of fans of his work. I can say that from from a personal point of view. So, how did working with such people influence your current work as a producer and as a label executive? Well, I think Eno's an interesting character. He's somebody that I would say. You know, not on a personal level, although I, I will tell the story about that because something happened quite recently. His approach to music and, again, this kind of thirst for musics, as, as him and John Hassel called it, uh, musics that exist out of the mainstream and even out of, let's say, the cultural stream that we're used to. This was a big influence on me, as I said, even when I was in university. That that really opened my world in the early '80s. Records like the Talking Heads remain in light, and the the Eno Byrne collaboration, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, and this, this these these were records that were really going to the wellspring of we're not going to call it world music, but musics from all over the world. And this was not something that was commonly done at the time, and uh, it was a very very mind expanding thing for me. And you know somehow that idea of you know culture not being a fortress but actually being something that is more a river you know that that it flows from here to there and you know recombines and hybrids are always being created you know we get very locked in this idea that you know unfortunately especially politically these days that 
cultures and ethnicity and all of this stuff and is some sort of frozen entity. But of course, you know, if we really reflect on it, it's not that at all. Culture comes from a common wellspring and it just spreads around the world. And, you know, we're all way more connected than we think we are. So I, I, th- these, these ideas from, you know, someone like Eno, as a practitioner of, of some of those ideas, that they, 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 they entered, you know, into my way of thinking quite early. And it was about 10 years after that, that we did Scavenger. And that was just, you know, very Eno thing, because Eno has always been somebody that talked a lot about chance and the idea of randomness and incorporating that into art, you know, being, being alive to the moment. And when we met Brian was just one night, he came by a studio where we were working. He was uh, in Seattle giving a lecture, and he was traveling with uh, this guy who ran his record label at the time, Opal Records, O-P-A-L. And that guy knew the guy who was working on our record, who was producing it, Gary Smith. And I remember in the afternoon at the studio, Gary said, well, Brian and, and David may may stop by. And I'm like, Brian? No. Okay, Brian, you know, and, you know, we didn't really believe it, it would happen, but there, there it was, you know, like 10 o'clock at night, there was a buzz at, at the, at the studio door and oh, I went to open the door and there's Brian, Eno standing there. And we ended up just, we, we were sort of sly and savvy about the thing. I mean, we were not going to be the ones that pushed this idea of a collaboration. He was just stopping by, but we had some beer we had a, this was back in the day of, of analog tape. We had a tape up on the machine. We had a song selected, you know, all of this stuff done very undercover. And we tried to act really cool and calm. And uh, we spent a couple hours drinking with him. And then he's like, oh, I'd love to hear something. What are you guys doing? You know, and so we went into the control room and he goes, oh, I love this. This is great. Show me the lyrics. And I, I brought him the lyrics. He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, would you mind if I did something on it? <laughs> And we all sort of smiled at each other, you know, like that that was the plan somehow, but we tried to keep it cool. Yeah, it was it was great. It must have I been an extraordinary experience, yeah. Yeah, it was an extraordinary it was it was like a dreamlike experience because there he was, and this is somebody I admired for so long, and somebody that, you know, I had honestly been quite influenced by in terms of I would say, you know, procedural uh, approach to making music, you know, h- how you put music into a context, what kind of influences you can use into music. I mean, there's so many things about Eno's working methodology, and I had read s- everything I could get my hands on, and there he was standing in the studio. So it was, it was all, all really amazing for me. Anyway, uh, he was really gracious and said that we could use the stuff that we had worked on, and basically, I have, not, I have had zero contact with Brian Eno ever again, except for this year. We released a record on Glitter Beats in April by a band from Ghana called Edit Confo. And this is a re-release. That record came out in 1981. And I had, I had that record when I was at university. And it was the only record that Brian Eno ever produced in Africa. And oh, wow. I always found it was a very interesting curio, you know, it was because Eno had, you know, never actually, Eno had worked with African musicians. He had worked on African type stuff with talking heads and so on. But suddenly this record came out in 1981 when I was at university and uh, I bought it and I loved this record. And when we started Glitterbeat, it was on our, let's say our list. It would be interesting to to try to reissue this record because it had never been reissued. It had never even been on CD, actually. 
And we approached, I, I won't go through the, the detective work, but we approached the, the, the monolithic universal uh, music, the largest record company in the world. They own catalog. You cannot believe how much catalog. And the label that that record came out on called EG Records, they should have had that in their catalog, but they didn't. We did the research and found out it was not there. And so it was kind of the whole trail stopped. Then I met a guy in, in Ljubljana that knew some musicians in Ghana. I approached some people. I got a phone number for the son of the guy who also engineered that record. I called, I called, I sent emails. Nothing happened. Then about two, actually, I guess it was just about one year ago, one day in my inbox, a small Dutch label sent me an email saying, would Glitterbeat be interested in doing a reissue of this band, Edeconfo? They have one record that came out. It was produced by Brian Eno, and I, I about fell off my chair. And I, and I, did, I called them immediately, and it, sure enough, they were in touch with original band members and blah, 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 blah. And so we agreed to do this, but there was, it, it was missing one thing. And what it was missing, obviously, was it would be not really doing it job the right way if Eno wasn't involved in some way. So I started working different angles to get in touch with Brian, and mostly this didn't work. Finally, I got a hold of his manager. The manager said the man's very busy. I said, of course he's busy. I understand that, but if, if he could do something for us, that would be wonderful. Just write a few paragraphs about his experience doing it. And that was also a dead end. So that was like in, let's say, I would guess January. Then I have a friend in England who's a producer, and he knew about this search I was doing. And he wrote to me on a Sunday. He said, Chris, I just met Brian Eno at a party. And he is absolutely interested in doing liner notes for your Eddie Contro reissue. In fact, he's given me his personal phone number and his personal email. And so here it is. And I wrote to Brian the next day on the Monday. I introduced myself, of course. I said I was from the walkabouts. We had spent an evening in a studio in Seattle in 1990 and so on. And uh, I sent this email around 5 o'clock. At 5.45, I received an email back with him with seven paragraphs of text of <laughs> wow, <laughs> the, the, like basically the full liner notes written brilliantly no, in no need of being edited. It was like, I, I, I was even joking to someone the other day about it. I says, it's like he just had it in a drawer, you know, like it was already written and he was just waiting someday for somebody to say, we're re-releasing this record and here are my liner notes. And uh, yeah, that was it. And I thanked him and he said, uh, good luck. And if you need anything else ever in the future, let me know. And uh, it was very nice, very gracious. And uh, yeah, so that's my more recent Brian Eno story. Oh, wow. That's a fantastic story. And it's interesting how you sort of reconnected with him after all those years. Uh, just amazing. Um, but now uh, we kind of want to go back to the past and ask you some questions about your early a career when you started out back in Seattle. Uh, we all know that the Seattle scene at that time was very rich, very diverse. A lot of uh, famous grunge bands came out of it. So what was it like to be a part of that scene back when you were starting out? Yeah, I mean, the Seattle scene was a small scene. I wrote an essay a couple years back. I think it was three years ago when Chris Cornell died. I did a, an essay for a, a, a website and 
I wrote a bit about it in that. And the essay starts, you know, that the scene was basically 200 people around 1987, let's say. And, and of those 200 people, that included people that worked at the two or three clubs that, that you know, booked this stuff, the girlfriends and boyfriends of the musicians, probably, you know, whoever was selling marijuana to the musicians and, and other stuff. You know, it was really, and that included all the fans too, you know, it was really, really small. And it was uh, very much a hidden thing. I mean, Seattle was really backwater, especially in 80, 86, 87 at that point. You know, there was some musicians that had left Seattle in the years before. Uh, Duff from Guns N' Roses, we all knew Duff. Duff had played in, uh, you know, several punk bands in Seattle. And, you know, he was ambitious. And anybody who was ambitious got the hell out of Seattle because Seattle was just about the worst town, certainly on the West Coast and possibly in America of, of, of towns its size to play music. By 85, 86, 87, most venues were not operating. There had been some sort of new wave venues. New wave had run its course. It was just this kind of transition zone where not much was happening. And what that did for the scene, interestingly enough, this kind of, let's say, bleak aspect of it, that nothing was really happening in some ways, that there were bands and bands didn't really have to think about being famous because that was never going to happen. So bands went into their basements which is quite a good thing to do in Seattle because it's raining like hell all the time anyway. They just went down in their basements and made music, started to develop you know, their own repertoire, their own individual you know, thing. And it was not really dictated by the trends of the time. It was dictated by basically your friends. You, know, you, you played music for your friends and your friends' feedback could be pretty harsh and direct, but it was the thing that... that we used. There was no media that was interested in the Seattle scene. And uh, we were just kind of doing it by you know, the skin of our teeth. But around 80, 88, that's when Sub Pop started. And that changed everything. These guys were super ambitious. And they saw these friends of theirs. And they were also part of the scene. They were also one of those, you know, amongst the 200 people that were in this scene. But they thought, let's, let's do something in a while, let's let's act like this is a really happening scene and try to market it to the rest of the world. And the crazy thing is that actually worked. And uh, I remember the big breakthrough was, I think probably 89, I think it was, when this guy Everett True, who wrote for Melody Maker, which was a weekly uh, British paper at that time, they, they flew him over, they paid for him to come, and he did like a four or five page article on you know we were all included. I, walkabouts were in there, and Nirvana was in there. Uh, early Soundgarden, Mud Honey, you know, all, Tad, all all of these bands, and uh, this was kind of the th- the beginning. And suddenly, this little scene was actually more famous in places like New York, and London, and even possibly Berlin than it was even in Seattle. It, it, it sort of started to get its real, let's say, traction outside of Seattle, and then the bands started to play locally and their the, the bigger shows and, and, and things like that. Thank you, Chris, for sharing such such great pieces of information and, and insight. I mean, the Seattle scene is a big, big part of my music taste, and I really admire acts uh, such as Soundgarden and Truly and also other grunge and rock bands, so to say. I mean, some of them 
obviously worked with with sub pop and uh, interestingly enough, uh, one of my first, if not the first, song by Sound Soundgarden that, that I've heard was a sub pop rock city. So that's that was quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really interesting to be a part of it. The Walkabouts had a very, let's say, unique perspective in it because we were on sub pop, but we were probably at that time the most far out band on sub pop. We really. You know, it was, it was kind of ironic that years later, Sub Pop was signing bands like Fleet Foxes, for example. But when we were doing this kind of pre-Americana stuff, whatever that was that we did in the the late 80s, uh, you know, we kind of stood out in America anyway, but we really stood out in Seattle and we really stood out on Sub Pop, which was a mixed blessing. You know, we were, we were certainly a part of all of that. You know, we played in the same clubs as all those bands. I mean, we were friends with them. But we, we didn't get pulled, you know, into that whirlwind of, of, of the grunge thing either, which sort of was a, maybe at first we looked at a, as a bit of a curse. You know, it was like, well, this really doesn't seem fair. We finally got a record deal, but this label is so busy with this other music that they don't have time really to help us out. And there was some bitterness with that. But what we saw as time went on is that we also didn't get this huge distraction uh, or this huge uh, yeah, amount of scrutiny and, and maybe o- overhype and over-expectation and all of that. And we just kind of went about what we always did, you know, making records and trying to get better at what we did. And, you know, around the, let's say, 92, 93, we started to really find our, our feet and, you know, our story started to really also take off, certainly not on the level of, you know, Soundgarden or Nirvana, but also you know, quite successful, especially in Europe. You know, we were able to do two, three tours a year. We were packing clubs all, all over the continent. But it was it was a unique perspective that we had, you know, because we were sort of had one foot in it and one foot out of it. Uh, yeah, that's great to hear, um, especially what it was like back in those days. And I have to say, you mentioned that you as a band really stood out. And I also share that opinion. Uh, for me, the Walkabouts are a very special band because it's uh, one of the first bands that I saw live when I moved to Belgrade, uh, I think. Um, and I still remember that experience very fondly. And now looking back at your back catalog, you've had so many beautiful records, somewhat stylistically different, so all rooted in Americana, but there's much more to it, in my opinion. You know, especially when you look at records like Night Town, for example, which is my favorite. So I wanted to ask you if it's possible, can you somehow sum up everything that you've done with the walkabouts? What are your favorite moments? What are your highlights, your favorite records that you did with the band? Yeah, that's a that's a tough question. But, you know, I, I think the one thing that we really tried to do throughout this rather long time that, that we were making records, 20, 25 years, is to, you know, try to make records that were of that moment for us, not the, that moment in terms of trends or what was, you know, considered uh, happening or sexy or whatever. You know, the, the idea, I think, was more that we wanted... The, our music really to be an honest reflection of who we are at that moment, not just in terms of what the lyrics were about, but also the sound. You know, if we were if we were interested in, you know, getting more interested, let's say, in music driven by strings, like you know, like you hear on Nighttown, 
we did a couple of records that were very orchestrated. You know, we, we had had a long history of being interested in that kind of music. Everybody from Scott Walker to all kinds of classic 60s pop that love and bands like that that used string sections and we had you know deep interest in that and so when we finally had a budget that we could actually play around with that kind of thing we were we were really driven to do it i i think you know probably the records i always liked the best were the ones where it felt like we were trying something you know taking some risk i mean night town is one of my favorite for sure Satisfied Mind, which we did in 1993. This was a real change. You know, we had never done a record that was so built on acoustic instruments. That was really a conscious choice. Also, we were doing covers, which was also an interesting choice. That record for me was changed a lot of things. We met a lot of people through that record. You know, there were people that just contacted us, like the Tinder Sticks out of out of the blue. They heard that record. Uh, Stuart was working at Rough Trade Records in. Uh, in London and that record came through and he's like, my God, what is this band? And he ended up, we ended up on the phone together, you know, like a month later. It just, yeah, a lot of things opened doors. And I mean, I, I, I'm very happy with the last Walkabouts record, Travels, Travels in the Dustland. I, I thought it was a really good summation of what we had done. It's kind of a lot of, a little bit of everything was there for, from our journey. But yeah, I, it's, it's, you know, there's 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 standout. Sometimes we got it right more than other times. But one thing for sure, we tried to keep it in the moment and tried to try to make it something that we really believed in, not just like we were making records so we could do tours. We really were trying to make stuff that uh, really mattered to us. Okay, Chris, plenty of great points and great, very interesting stories. Uh, we would now like to wrap this up with some trivia questions. So let's get into that uh, real quickly. I would like to ask you to kind of uh, put yourself in uh, perhaps a different position in a way. So my trivia question is, how would you feel as an audience member of your own show? <laughs> well, I, I guess it depends on, would depend on how good the show was. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I think at different times, you know, in the band's career, I mean, certainly I, I thought, and I, I strongly believe this, you know, I, I, you know, some bands arrive very fully formed somehow. That some, you know, this is that thing that some, some bands, you know, the Gang of Four's first album, Entertainment, is arguably their best. They made other really good records, but everything that they were trying to do is in that record. The first Wire record, uh, Pink Flag, maybe this is their best record. Walkabouts were not that kind of band. We were very like confused and searching early on. So I think if I had seen the early Walkabouts, I would have been like sort of scratching my chin, going, "I'm not really sure what this band is trying to do here," because that, that's because that's sort of how we felt. You know, we felt like it wasn't really all adding up and connecting. But we were still we were either like such dedicated hard workers or we were just kind of stupid. I don't know which it was, but we stuck around and we kept doing it. And, you know, then it started to, to take some form. But, you know, if I had come upon the walkabouts, maybe even this first show in Belgrade, you know, I mean, we, we got to the point where we played really strong concerts and we were all very satisfied with, with what we were doing. And, you know, I would hope that I would, if I was a band member, I'd, I would also see it that way. But I'm I'm also very critical, you know, if I go to concerts. So maybe I wouldn't, you know, I, I could have also been somebody who didn't like the concert. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, and I have a question for you. 
if you could have a conversation with one songwriter in the world and pick his brain, who would that be? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I've been very blessed. You know, I, I, I traveled for a few days in the mid-90s with Towns Van Zandt. Carla and I hung out with him. I mean, we knew Towns a bit. We actually talked about songs. You know, I, I mean, that for me, he's, you know, the embodiment of, of you know, everything I ever wanted to do as a songwriter. Not that I wanted to be exactly like him. It's just, you know, this idea that he could tell stories, but this deep emotion was also there. It was poetic, yet it wasn't pretentious. It felt real. It felt as real as the landscape that he was, he was writing about. So maybe, you know, my answer is that I was lucky enough to already have had that conversation. You know, Towns would have been the person that I would have wanted to do that with. And I was, I was rather blessed that I, I got to do that with Towns. And uh, let's, let's say those few days, you know, several hours that we hung out, a couple different periods, you know, the, these, these are some of the most profound experiences of my life. You know, just uh, he was a very generous guy. He was a very troubled guy. I mean, we, we all know that. I mean, he had pretty heavy demons with alcohol. But on the other hand, he was somebody who was willing to you know, share share insights into his gift, and he hadn't forgotten completely what what that gift was. Uh, yeah, Towns was uh, incredible. It it must have been amazing to be in in his presence and be able to talk to him about songwriting. And thank you so much for sharing this kind of insight with us. So we're getting to the end of the show. Uh, thank you so much for talking to us and for giving us all these incredible stories and details. And we're really looking forward to hearing about your next projects. Also, dear listeners, uh, please check out Chris Ackman's work, uh, his solo records, his work with Dirt Music, The Strange, and maybe most importantly, his work as a label owner uh, with Glitter Beat Records. They have a fantastic catalog of, of musicians from all over the globe with all kinds of styles. So if you have the time, Go check out their Bandcamp page. Give them a listen. They definitely deserve that. Okay, Alexander, I'll let you wrap it up. Right. Thanks, Vlada. And Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure chatting with you and, and genuinely enjoyed this, this conversation. A lot, of, a lot of great stories. Also, a lot of great experiences from, uh, from, from your side. Uh, and now, uh, dear listeners, thank you very much for tuning in and listening to our show. And this is a new feature on our podcast. Uh, we're very glad that we have been able to, to interview uh, great artists so far. So uh, stay tuned for, for more interviews. Uh, check out our social media, uh, which is obviously Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And Chris, would you like to quickly share where our listeners can find about you? Yeah, I think um, I've got a website. I'm not; it's not terribly updated, but it's it's there. Uh, I also have a Bandcamp page for the solo stuff. Walkabouts are pretty easy to find. Also, uh, Dirt Music, uh, Dirt Music records for for Glitter Beats. That that's also can be found on on the Bandcamp page. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks, thanks for having me. It's been an enjoyable conversation. Thank you. Uh, we enjoyed every moment.
write a review, and then you can share it with the world in any social media platform. And then your friends see it and you can share and discover new shows together. This is Steph, instigator of Pod Rev Day Podcast Review Day. And I'm Andy from Inspired Money. And I'm Arielle of Earbuds Podcast Collective and CastBox. We're here to tell you everything you need to know about Pod Rev Day. Which is on the 8th of every month of every year of every century of every, you get it. We are posting podcast reviews as part of hashtag PodRev Day, Podcast Review Day. Because podcasters work their butts off and deserve to know how much they've impacted your lives. And you can do that through reviews. Even one star feels surprisingly <laughs> good. Does it? It lets you know that people are at least listening. Don't be a passive podcast listener. Write a review and tell your favorite creator what you love about their podcast or about a specific episode. And to participate, you just need to do one review. And we'll see you every eighth of the month. PodRev Day. Because podcasters deserve to hear it. Hashtag PodRev Day. P-O-D-R-E-V-D-A-Y.